It's important for me to focus on the intersection of the right to food and the right to health because one of the definitions of the right to health is beyond just access to health facilities, but also a focus on underlying determinants of health. And we know that food security, nutrition is a key determinant of health outcomes. And I think as the United Nations and all the member states are collectively envisioning a future for us around sustainable development, peace and security, human rights, it was important for me to bring to them um, an analysis on food and the right to health, but that's also anti-racist and anti-colonial, and also some good practices and recommendations of how we can truly leave no one behind when we think about starvation and hunger. And food, of course, is a powerful resource, um, but it's also a powerful political, cultural, economic values as well. And it was important for this particular report to highlight that it is more than the nutrition it provides. And in a way, think deeply about who gets excluded and also who gets you know, included in some of the programming that we think about, but really centering the human right to health, which includes underlying determinants. Can you give us an overview of, of maybe a couple of the conclusions for, that you found? Absolutely. The report did focus on different themes. For example, we looked at marketing and front package labeling, at good fiscal policy and how it intersects with good food policy. I also looked, of course, at the issues of clinical outcomes or clinical impact and food and nutrition. Also looking, of course, at the issues of protection of land and biodiversity and healthy environment. And ultimately, through the incredible support of stakeholders and member states who supported and responded to the call for contribution, the report also highlighted some really good practices. And I'm really proud um, that report actually has some good, good examples of what works in particular contexts and why and what certain member states can also draw on as inspiration as they think um, about sustainable future and a sustainable planet. Also, of course, the recommendations um, are quite extensive and exhaustive, um, and I try to cover as many lenses as possible to allow human rights um, workers, civil society, member states, policymakers, legislators, importantly, but also thinking about business and its role in human rights, as well as, of course, indigenous peoples, LGBT populations, um, local communities, and the entire chain of food production from the moment the seed goes into the ground to the moment we consume it and what impact that food has on our body. So tools for everybody to draw from in your recommendations. Can you give us a specific example, just one or two that you find particularly illustrative and impactful? So, for example, you know, in terms of uh, food, uh, at least the front package labeling, and the impact of targeted and harmful marketing on children. A lot of Latin American countries have actually taken good steps forward in this regard. Um, for example, Mexico has an um, imminent uh, court judgment around food front package leveling. Um, we also have the Constitutional Court um, of uh, Colombia that has recently, in fact, the day as I was presenting the report, affirmed um, the right to healthy food and the fact that people have a right to information it's important because the right to health also has particular entitlements and we are all entitled to information, to enabled informed consent and better decision making. And so for me, front package labeling is just one example of an issue that seems outside of human rights, that lies in the corporate sector, but has direct impact on children, 
on indigenous peoples, on people experiencing poverty, homelessness. And so it's important for me as an illustration of how human rights are important for all stakeholders and that, in fact, one actor may be taking particular decisions. They will have a ripple effect and a direct impact on the realization of the right to health. I'm going to move on to the pandemic and its effects. We're just coming out of of the COVID-19 pandemic. What most surprised you about its impact on the connection between food and physical and mental health? One of the inspirations for this actual report was those experiences of COVID-19 and the incredible, unimaginable food insecurity that has resulted from the widespread lockdowns and, of course, the interruption of the usual economic and social activities. What was also interesting is that that impact was disproportionate on people of African descent, black people across the world, indigenous populations, the LGBTIQ plus populations, people with disabilities. And if I can draw one example, I suppose, from that is that you had a lot of um, food program and food aid that was going to families. And the way in which we are currently defining a family is a man and a woman, and the man is the head of the household. And for many of us, that's not our definition of our own primary nucleus family. And so you had people who were cut out of food aid simply because their family looks different. And that is, for me, it shows the gross limitations in how we define particular things. A lot of people who are transgender, for example, were not just only excluded by policy, where in many countries around the world, their identity is still criminalized. And so it becomes difficult. For example, um, you may be a sex worker as well. If you are living in a criminalized state where your literal existence can put you into prison with real consequences, it becomes hard for you to seek social support even in the time of the pandemic. And so some of the interventions I was making at the special repertoire at the time of that acute emergency phase was to call on member states to really be intentional and think deeply about who is being left behind. You know, we know the the UN slogan, which is really true, leave no one behind. And I was making a case that we are actually already leaving people behind. And let's not forget that there are active, immediate obligations to expeditiously meet the minimum obligations under the right to health. And for me, food and the intersection of the right to health was really important because we know if you are malnourished, your chances of surviving COVID as an infection and a viral infection was impacted. If, for example, you had diabetes, hypertension, a lot of non-communicable diseases that are usually diet-related meant more severe disease from COVID or even death from COVID. And so it was undeniable how important not just food security, but nutritious food was in terms of a response to the COVID-19 pandemic, but also who got left out of social programs. I'm going to move on to mental health. Up until recently, it was almost considered a taboo to discuss mental health issues, a source of shame and exclusion. Or What do you think has led to the change in that? I think mental health for me also, you know, represents quite a fascinating subject in medicine. And being a doctor and having studied psychiatry, there's a lot of history there um, that is uh, available, you know, for people who have interest to go deeper into. But it's really related to the issues of autonomy and freedom and self-determination. And if you think about mental health and some of its direct impact is on insight and judgment, and there's this feeling and idea that people with mental health must be controlled, um, must be institutionalized. And I think why mental health has stopped being a taboo is I think it mirrors what has happened with social media and people having access to have conversations outside of the doctor 
patient scenario where people are now freer to share and identify with each other and also share their journey. I think the shame associated with mental health is precisely because when you have poor judgment and poor insight, you are not making the best decisions. And we tend to blame individuals for the conditions they find themselves in. And that's why, for example, in the approach to the mandate, I often talk about vulnerable situations and not vulnerable people. And I think for me, it's part of that changing the narrative in terms of who can have a mental health condition, how we frame and name particular things, because that also lays the blame on particular people or individuals. And so I think for me, the incredible advocacy of um, people with mental health has been really important in turning the tide to remove the stigma. And I wish more healthcare workers and professionals would also be advocating for dignified care and a patient-centered approach that's, um, you know, fundamentally supported by human rights. I think that's really the key. And, and what has made it less taboo, made it more acceptable, is that people are literally fighting for their autonomy even within those instances where they may be in a vulnerable situation. Do you think that uh, society and health workers are equipped to support and provide mental health care? There's often such a, um, a gap between being in a society that is expecting a certain output and that output is so much more trying for somebody with mental health challenges. It's, it's so important to really talk about access to not just treatment, but also diagnostics, early screening, and some preventative strategies as well. And many countries, if not the majority of the countries, are still not training enough healthcare workers who have a specific focus on mental health. A lot of the community health workers, simply because they are just placed at that primary level, they end up, of course, absorbing a lot of the first screening. They end up being the first responders, especially in the mental um, crisis or in an acute uh, moment of distress. And yet they are not necessarily supported in terms of training, in terms of curriculum, but also in terms of um, the job itself, um, them having proper tools of the trade. And a lot of the times they are not paid as community healthcare workers, and yet they take on a lot of the and, and, and patch a lot of the gaps that exist in health systems. So I would advocate for more training of healthcare workers who have a specific focus and speciality on mental health. But we also need to create communities that are sustainable and are conducive to people's thriving. And this means that we really have to rethink and reshape entirely how we focus on psychiatry and, and the kinds of interventions that happen. And one of the other things I, I strongly advocate for is to not rely so much on institutionalization and really think broadly about community participation, the people whose lives are impacted by these issues so that they can tell us and define for us what dignified care is. Mm -hmm. And we should be able to then come up with programming, policy, legislation, and budgeting that speaks to that dignified care. But for me, it's really at that primary healthcare level where early screening, early intervention, and support can't be disconnected from the medical intervention. It has to be a whole social support and a mechanism. Do you think that this acknowledgement of mental health and the being able to identify around it and converse around it in social media has, in a way, given way to mental health as an identity as well? I'm thinking in terms of youth. I think what all humans seek is that feeling that I'm not alone in this or whatever I'm going through is not because of my own internal failure or some genetic predisposition. 
And I think social media has created that for people and has provided them that sense of community in ways that, you know, waiting for a face-to-face interaction could not. And when you think about COVID and the widespread lockdowns, it means we were cut off socially from engaging with each other. And so the use of social media and apps and platforms such as that, I think, became a lifeline for many people. Some people, it's only through hearing another psychologist, a mental health worker, psychiatrist, talk about particular mental health conditions that they then start to think, oh, wait, hold on, maybe they're describing me. And that inspires them to seek help. And so for me, in terms of patient education, information and advocacy, I really do think there is a big, big role to play in terms of um, technology. And um, we need to protect digital health rights as well, keeping in mind that a lot of personal information then lives in these apps on, on the internet. And how do we then safely safeguard human rights in this era of digital innovation and technology and um, just out of interest that's a report I presented to the Human Rights Council um, trying to make an argument that human rights are still central and foundational um, for all of us and so on the one hand the use of technology and social media and apps by rights holders is incredible on the one hand we need to make sure that we safeguard human rights in those platforms as well, because regulation and policy will look very different from a doctor-patient consultation. What do you think that governments and the UN can do to uphold the right to physical and mental health? I think the United Nations, member states, all of the different UN entities should really be intentional about restoration of dignity for people. We need to be honest that some of us are not in the situations we are right now as communities around the world because of personal choices we made. We have to pay attention to the history and the legacy of ongoing colonialism. We have to talk about racism. We have to talk about sexism and gender inequality. And the fact that these are not just difficult conversations to have and therefore they are done. They have literal consequences when the UN fails to uphold these rights, when the UN fails to articulate clearly in their resolutions in the different ways that they think about programming. And of course, I remain you know, available as a, as a mended holder, as an expert on the right to health, to support the UN family, so to say, and how we envision this future. And we know we are getting to 2030. We know realistically we are not going to meet those targets that we have set for ourselves. And so my wish and my call is for all of us to sit around the table and to collectively vision for a world that is just and equal, but that also takes into account the social, political, um, social matrix that people find themselves in and why they get disempowered versus why others are able to progress. I think those are hard conversations, but they do need to happen. And for me, human rights is foundational to all of those solutions.